Welcome to a special edition of The Illumined Heart with your hosts Kevin Allen and Steve McMeans. Stay tuned. Well, today we bring you part three of a three-part series commemorating the 25th anniversary of the repose of seeker, struggler, writer, monk, and priest, Father Seraphim Rose. This final interview was conducted by Illumined Heart co-host Kevin Allen with Father Garasim, the abbot of St. Hermit of Alaska Monastery in Platina, California, and Father Seraphim's spiritual child. In this interview, Abbot Garasim speaks about Father Seraphim Rose, about prayer, and about orthodox spirituality. They spoke outdoors, sitting on a wooden bench in front of a six-foot-tall orthodox cross, overlooking the spectacular panorama of Mount Yolabali. And since the interview was conducted outdoors, you'll hear the wind, the rustling of leaves, and even birds chirping in the background as day end approaches. Here's Kevin Allen. Uh, Father Abbott Garasim from St. Herman Monastery. First of all, thank you very much for allowing me to come and visit your monastery. You're most welcome. Appreciate it very, very much. And thank you for taking me to this beautiful spot out, outdoors and outside in Platina, California for this interview. So you knew and worked with uh, Father Seraphim Rose. It's a great blessing in my life to have been able to know him the last two years of his life and to have entered the monastery a little over a year before his repose. So you knew him for about a year? Knew him solidly for a year. But of course, we had met the year before when a fellow college student and I came and made a pilgrimage to the monastery. Of course, back then we were extremely naive, and we were full of all sorts of ideas and opinions about ourselves, about spirituality. And during that next year, I thought almost every single day about that visit to the monastery. So when I finally came back to the monastery and actually settled here in August of 1981, I had a clear idea of who he was and of what I wanted in my life. You were Orthodox formally uh, at that time? Yes. The first time I visited was not too long after I had be, uh, become an Orthodox Christian. It was the first real Orthodox pilgrimage I had made, and I already had an interest in the monastic life. But my visit here, and especially our talk with Father Seraphim, caused this interest to to grow and grow, and eventually led me to return to the monastery for good. Now, are you from a, a an Orthodox family? No, actually, my family background is primarily Episcopalian. After my, at a certain point in time, in high school, I became more involved with some of the evangelical groups. And then in college, I started to go, I was attending both Episcopalian church and also a Baptist church. Was was Father um, Seraphim your spiritual confessor when you actually came and, and became a novice? Yes. I had had another confessor before that, Archimandrite Anastasi, who reposed about uh, two years ago. And when I came to the monastery, since Father Seraphim was here on a daily basis, he was involved with the monks' lives from the first bell in the morning all throughout to the end of evening prayers every evening. He was the one who was closest to us, the one to whom we could turn with our problems. 
or what was taking place inside our hearts. In fact, at that time, we were very fortunate during that last year of his life. And because he was present at the monastery, basically all the time, that we had the opportunity after the evening service, after evening prayers, to approach him in the church for a brief, informal revelation of thoughts. Hmm. And so it was actually very interesting for a young novice to be able to begin to take part in that monastic discipline. Hmm. What was he like as a spiritual father and and a pastor? Was he strict? Was he warm-hearted? Was he discerning? What can you tell us about him that we may not have been able to pick up in the books? Well, first of all, he was strict in one sense. That is, if there was some sort of nonsense, he would say something. But on a personal level, he was actually very compassionate. I remember one time that I was telling him something about perhaps comparing myself to other people in general or talking about some other problem. And he said very clearly, we need to be paying attention to ourselves. You need to look at what's in your own heart. And when he said that, he was being very direct. And perhaps at that moment, his voice was strict. But I think really he was... He had great concern for the direction at that moment, for example, of my spiritual life. But I think he was like this with many people. Keep remi- he kept reminding them that they need to pay attention to their own spiritual life and not anyone else's problems or uh, what they might have heard, what somebody else did or said, but really what was on their heart, what was on their soul, and they needed to give an account of what was on their conscience. Now, Father um, Seraphim is considered in, in, in the literature and so on as, as having been a very strict ascetic himself. Um, would you characterize his spiritual praxis that way? Yes, we can say that he was a strict ascetic, especially in relation to the world in which we live. Mm. Uh, in relation to the contemporary American lifestyle, he was very strict. For example, it's well known. He didn't wash himself. He wore the same robes day after day. Even sometimes in the summer, one robe on top of another. Hmm. He had a disregard for all such concerns. So in this sense, he was very strict. In other regards, compared to, for example, St. Simeon the Stylite, St. Anthony the Great, the Holy Fathers of Mount Athos, he would not have considered himself strict at all he would have said, really, we are unprofitable servants. We are doing that which is merely our duty to do. And he would always emphasize that we should not think highly about ourselves. We should not be puffed up or uh, give some sort of value to our own labors. And he constantly stressed that. And so I think by our contemporary American standards, yes, he lived a strict monastic life. But by his own standards, he mm. he felt that uh, he was simply striving to live a humble monastic life. And I don't think he uh, was trying to somehow compare himself to how somebody else may be living 
or how other people should be living or how monastics are supposed to live according to some uh, non-existent textbook. Right. He was called by one, at any rate that I've read, a hesychist. Would you consider him to be a what I would think of as a classical hesychist on the Athenite traditional scale? or I think Father Seraphim himself would say that we're poor monastics. And I think he had great reverence for the classic monastic life, lived on Mount Athos, lived there today, lived there in ancient times, and lived there in the times that he knew about. And I don't think he would be very quick to use that word for example, Hesychast about himself. But I think he's definitely in a whole lineage of the tradition of the Hesychast movement. And I think one of the hallmarks of the Hesychast tradition is that the monks talk little about themselves. And he would always try to point out examples of others, such as, for example, St. Paisius Velichkovsky or the Russian fathers of Kurulia from the beginning of the century, or Saint Seraphim Masarov, his own patron saint, as an example of a true monastic, one who embodied the whole Hesychast tradition. And yet at the same time, he treasured silence, he treasured stillness, he loved his isolation in the forest. And for example, when you would, when you would ask him a question, there would be this pause in which he would be silently saying the Jesus prayer one time and then he would reply to a question mm. and when some sort of difficulty came up he said did you pray did you pray first did you pray about it did you ask the intercession of archbishop john and so in that regard he was praying he had, as St. John of the Ladder said, one foot in obedience and the other stretched out in prayer. He also did a lot of writing and, and research. Um, so so he, he managed to incorporate that in, in his life. Dumb question, perhaps, but how does one practice interior prayer and also use the discursive part of the brain that produces the kind of materials that he, that he did? Well, that's an excellent question because the Holy Fathers, in fact, do counsel us to have tasks or handicrafts that are simple, that do not distract us from prayer. For example, there's discussion of this in the writings of St. Nilus of Sora. And St. Nilus of Sora counsels his monks to have such handicrafts or obediences there in the monastery, which will not require one to, to be absent in mind elsewhere but to be able to continually pray. Father Seraphim had a very intense mind. He had a very uh, uh, intense intellectual training. He was able, because of his philosophical training, to think very clearly, in a way almost piercingly. And so I think this combined with his pastoral outlook, the way he regarded other people, the kindness that he showed towards them, allowed him, while at the same time having both a uh, strict analytical view of the subject matter, and as well a compassionate regard 
for those for whom he was writing, or the brothers in the monastery, or people for whom he was asked to pray. Hmm. And so I, so when someone is thinking about others and has their hmm. their needs, their sorrows, their sufferings on his heart, he'll be constantly turning in prayer. And of course, I'm sure while he was writing one of the many books that he wrote, or that were even put together after he reposed, there were times when he wasn't consciously praying in in, in a definable way. Right. But his disposition was directed to God, and I think he worked in a very peaceful manner. Later you'll go and see his cell. You'll see where he wrote, where he typed. Mm. And of course that was in the days where when you were writing something, you typed it on a typewriter, and if there was a mistake, you would have to go correct it and retype it later. Right. You couldn't just push Not a computers. few yeah. backspace keys yeah. and uh, <clears throat> correct your mistakes on the spot. Mm. So his life and his attitude was one of prayer, and he was able to therefore incorporate even his writing and his research in that general, as you say, his, that general disposition. Yes, for example, in the early days of our monastery, it's very isolated. Guests were very rare. Very few people came to, as they would say, interrupt their silence. And when they worked, one would be working in one room and another in another room. Or at times, if they were really busy with the magazine, one of the monks would be in church and the other might still be finishing the print run for that day. And they had cells at a stone's throw apart in the forest so that you couldn't hear the sound of a door closing in another cell from the cell in which you were staying. And we even have a little system set up, you'll see when you approach a cell. There was a bell about a hundred feet away, and when we would approach his cell, we'd stop where that bell is, and it's still hanging there to this day. We'd ring the bell, a very small bell, and say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy me, a sinner. And he would answer with a <clears throat> cough and then a amen. <laughs> and then we would approach his cell, ask our question. We'd get a blessing, ask our question. He'd give a little reply, and we'd leave, and he'd go back to his work. Hmm. Right there, isolated in the forest, hmm. sometimes with the deer sleeping around the cell or walking nearby. My, my. And so there was very little distraction. Yes. We didn't. We, we don't hear sirens, or uh, brakes screeching outside our cells. We don't have people turning on televisions, or screaming. And so, when the external circumstances of your, of your life are actually selected, so that your life will be full of peace, so that your heart will be undisturbed then, of course, it's easier to go, to go from prayer to prayer. Father Abbot, do, do the monks uh, at Platina, at St. Herman's, um, are, are they still trained in, in the Hesychus tradition of silent and audible prayer? Yes, each brother performs his cell rule by himself. Each brother is given a rule of prayer by the abbot, or in my absence, by Hiram of Damascene. And they come to us and tell us how they're praying 
And for example, at confession, they will say, for example, whether they completed their cell, cell rule or not, whether they did it hurriedly or at peace, whether they were, whether they collapsed in the middle of it. Sometimes they will say that they had to get up the next morning and do it. Or someone will come to me during the church services and say that I didn't finish my cell rule. Will you bless me to go and make some prostrations or something like that? So each of the brothers in his own way is striving to cultivate a life of prayer. Now, by the standards of some well-ordered monasteries, Mount Athos, other places, perhaps especially in Russia and Romania today, we're on a very low level. But we strive to conduct a life of prayer. We strive to say the Jesus prayer. Some brothers, while they're working, will be saying it semi-audibly. And this has the benefit, for example, that that prayer would continue during the time that they're working. And in fact, I know quite clearly that when one of the brothers is saying the Jesus prayer semi-audibly at his task, I'm reluctant to go and interrupt him or to make a comment because there's something mystical, something uh, spiritual that is taking place that is perhaps beyond the concern that I might have at that moment. Mm. And in a way, it would be counterproductive to our life to interrupt that. Mm. And we don't think very, we don't have high thoughts or great imagination about our own way of life. But we reverence the contemporary fathers around the world and the recent fathers have passed on before us. And we hope that by their prayers, we will grow and continue in the monastic life. Hmm. Father, is, is the sort of prayer that, that we're talking about that the monks and the nuns do here uh, at, at their respective monasteries, are these prayers and this discipline suited for Orthodox living in the world and in, in parish life, obviously in a modified form? Yes. This is often a source of controversy. The Apostle Paul, as we know, says, pray unceasingly. And if the Apostle has said this, and... If we are to be like watchmen waiting for our Lord's return, then there's nothing wrong with praying constantly. Every person has their responsibilities. A father has to take care of his children, his wife, and the well-being, see, for the well-being of his family. Somebody who is in a position of authority has to take that authority very seriously. Uh, children are enjoined to learn, to acquire skills so they can use them in life, and to rejoice in the work of their hands all the days of their life. However, an Orthodox Christian, with the counsel of his parish priest or spiritual father, can benefit by withdrawing his mind from gossip, idle talk, the news, everything that appears to be most important in this world, and to retreat a little into the refuge of prayer. 
And there, in the refuge of prayer, we are comforted by God. Our Lord says that He says to that uh, He stands at the door and knocks. And His will is that He would come and take up His abode within us. And ultimately, for a Christian, whether he's a monastic or a layperson, to have the Lord Jesus Christ enthroned in his heart hmm. is a beautiful goal. Is that the goal of prayer? The ultimate goal of prayer is to have Christ abiding in our in our hearts? Yes. When we say the prayer to the Holy Spirit, come and abide in us and cleanse us of all impurity and save our souls, a good one. We pray just for that. We pray that uh, God would be enthroned by His grace in our hearts. Then we could be called Christians, those who bear the name of Christ. That's why the monastics have always held in great reverence St. Ignatius of Antioch, who is considered the uh, inspirer of Christian prayer, inspirer of the Jesus prayer. And it's said that when he died in the arena in Rome, that all that was left after he was devoured by the lions was his heart with the name of Jesus inscribed on it. Now, there was no one with a video camera there watching that. There's no concrete proof that this exactly took place and wasn't in some way some sort of metaphor. But that's but we have St. Ignatius of Antioch the same one who writes so clearly about Christian life, about the church, about worship, about the Holy Scriptures, about offering himself to the wild beasts, we also have him as a patron of the Jesus prayer. Hmm. And if the Apostle Paul enjoins Christians to pray unceasingly, if our Lord Jesus Christ has enjoined us to watch at midnight for the coming of the bridegroom, then there is something very dear to every Christian to be watchful, sober, and looking for the coming again of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is this, these words of the Apostle Paul, uh, Yea, Lord, come quickly, Maranatha, which are often thrown around as a cliché, but for an Orthodox Christian, they're very real, very healthy, and we should approach prayer in this way. That prayer is not uh, something like an exercise, like push-ups or weightlifting or aerobics, but it's something that is real, critical, and points to an imminent event. As we say in the Creed, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the age to come. Why, Father, why do so many books about prayer that we read caution us about pursuing the Jesus prayer without an experienced spiritual father or director? If, if, the, if prayer is enjoined, as you, as you mentioned, by uh, the Apostle Paul and, and so on, as, as you so, so well put it, why is this particular discipline spoken of in, in terms of being under obedience, if you will, or under... Or under directorship well I think the ancient Greeks understood this well they wrote in their myths 
they talked about those who in their and under their own steam would try to raise themselves up to the heavens like Icarus and so if mm. mankind primordially is uh, has a predilection towards becoming too lofty minded then the Holy Fathers have seen that in the spiritual life, this is the case also. People lift themselves up. They become rules to themselves. We see this in the church. We see this in government. We see this in family life. People want to become a rule unto themselves. And in the Christian spiritual life, we become accountable to someone else. As the Apostle Paul says, be followers of me. And so we trust, for example, the guidance of the Apostle Paul. We trust the guidance of those Christians who were placed by the early apostles as the head of the early Christian communities throughout the world. And we believe this has continued to this very day. And we believe that God has not abandoned us, that he has provided pastors and shepherds in each of our parishes, our ruling bishops, in some of the local monasteries and also in some of the more well-known monasteries throughout the world to be guides so that people instead of lifting themselves up and having the wax that holds their feathers on melt and dashing down to the earth that one would gradually rise up to the uh, fullness of the stature of a child of God and Saint Ignatius Brian Shaninov in his book The Arena has a good explanation of this. There was a young man who came to him and he asked counsel and St. Ignatius said, whatever you do, don't have a room on the second floor. And the young man was perplexed. He said, why? He says, because you'll have a vision of angels coming to take you off to Mount Athos. He says, Father, I've often thought about that. So this man's soul was predisposed mm. to being raised up by the demons just far enough so they could dash him down senseless to the earth. Mm. And they do this out of their malice and jealousy toward mankind because God became incarnate. He took human nature upon himself. He united mankind to himself in his own person so that mankind could inherit and enter into the kingdom of God. And the demons were cast out had infinite malice and jealousy toward mankind because of the great gift of grace that we have received through the Incarnation. And so they look at every step to trip someone up. And if they're ready to trip people up, how much more ready are they to see someone raised up far above where they should be and fall senseless hmm. to the earth? So a spiritual director is, is first and foremost to keep us from pride. Pride. Delusion. Delusion. Hmm. A hard-heartedness. For example, People often come and they complain that so-and-so did this and this and this and this. And I say, well, did you go and ask forgiveness? And they say, well, I didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> it says, the first person to go ask forgiveness is the one who gets a crown. It says, maybe you could start it. Maybe you could go and ask someone and say, forgive me for having done that. What are they going to do? They're going to immediately reply back, well, will you also forgive me for what I said to you? And so it's important that we have that we're accountable. We know in our government, we know in the history of recent uh, church affairs, whether Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, 
or even all these various sects, what happens when there's no accountability? Uh, things go from, as we say, bad to worse. And when a person humbles himself and he, say, he relies on the prayers of his neighbor more than his own prayers, he becomes open to the movement of the grace of God in his life. And in our society, where we are often very self-assured, where we have learned how well we can use our skills, how efficient we can become, we often forget little things like this. Like a, a husband who knows that his wife's praying for him. And he asks God to have mercy him through his wife's prayers. Or he remembers how important it is to pray for his children because they're walking to mm -hmm. school that are, or they're returning home. And he turns in prayer to God for them. This is what draws the, the love and grace and mercy of God into, uh, toward our lives. And in this state, it's a lot easier to pray. A person who's humble, his prayer, well, we would say, ascends straight to heaven. And somebody whose prayer is proud, really that prayer becomes in a way an abomination to God. And there are people who won't want to hear such things. But really, a uh, uh, God inclines towards the humble of heart. Mm. And this is what the Holy Scriptures say. And he turns away from the proud. A contrite and humble heart God will not despise. We often, Father, we Orthodox pick up ideas, especially about the Jesus prayer from books, reading the Philokalia, the way of a pilgrim, the arena, as you mentioned, other Orthodox books. Is, is this a good idea? Yes. Anything that helps lift us up or inspire us to prayer can be good. Of course, there can be too much of a good thing. As you mentioned earlier, and as I know from my own background, that, uh, I read Way of a Pilgrim toward the beginning of my Orthodox Christian life. And I remember at my university walking out into the garden in the dark, far from the dorm rooms, the quiet, to say the Jesus prayer in the garden in the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. Of course, uh, this was a very, uh, the prayer of an enthusiastic young person, maybe with a lot of passion and less contrition, maybe more opinion about myself than the working of grace. But I was able to take a few words about prayer and mm. to begin to mm. reorient my life because of that. One of the best examples, of course, is the life of St. Simeon, the new theologian. He read a few short passages from the book by St. Mark the Ascetic, whose, some of whose writings are included in the Philokalia. And there, in St. Simeon's writings, it's actually one of his homilies, it's one of his catechetical homilies, he talks in the third person, as if in the third person, about this young man, the youth George. Well, he is really talking about himself. Oh, is that right? And okay, he talks yeah. about what great spiritual heights this young man attained because he followed the words of his instructor mm. and he held to these passages in the writings of St. Mark the Ascetic. And he became one of the greatest of the God-bearing elders of all ages. And so, yes, we should, we should underline these passages. We should collect them. We should share them with our friends. We should 
append them to any messages we send in our emails. We should maybe put a little stick pad with that little note on our desk for the day. Something to remind us that there's some other reality than, for example, Walmart, Office Depot, or Starbucks. There's something to which we should be lifted up each day. And if we are constantly reminding ourselves of God's presence, that actually we are in the presence of the Kingdom of God, then something wonderful has been achieved. But yes, we can read too much, get ideas into our head, mm. and go start teaching everybody else. Right. And maybe even overdo yes. and burn out and or burn out, yes, or start <clears throat> telling everyone in the parish that unless they're saying the Jesus prayer around the clock, they shouldn't be receiving Holy Communion. Right. That if the priest doesn't agree with you, there's something wrong with the priest. This is all absurd. This is uh, the this is fanaticism. But if it's everything's received in balance and also with a few words of instruction of one's spiritual father or parish priest, then one can grow in a very healthy, organic way, in unity with his fellow believers, and in communion with the whole church. Father, if we could, I'd like to focus a little bit more on, on the prayer and, and prayer itself. Um, and, and the Jesus prayer has a variety of forms, and maybe you'll um, be able to share some of that with us. But before we get into specifics, the Jesus prayer isn't something mechanistic or a technique, is it? It's not a form of, you know, Christian mantra meditation or anything like that. No, the best way to describe this, the best perspective to gain on this is that the early fathers called the Jesus prayer the prayer of the publican. And if, if we receive the Jesus prayer as the prayer of the publican, O oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's a cry from the depths of this heart of a man who saw his own sins. Then we can see that really it has very little in common with the mechanistic systems that are developed, especially in the non-Christian East. However, throughout the ages, the Holy Fathers have handed down various forms or uh, ways of instructing people in saying the Jesus Prayer, repeating the Jesus Prayer, and this has proved very beneficial. But at heart, essentially, it should be remembered that the Jesus Prayer is the prayer of the publican, of this man who cried out in a parable, it should be remembered, it was a parable that our Lord Jesus Christ told, and therefore, in that sense, he taught us to pray in this way, O God, be merciful mm. to me, a sinner. Which, of course, isn't a mantra. No, so, so it's the it's, it's a cry. It's, it's a cry really, from an afflicted heart, hmm. as you said, a contrite and humble heart. God will not despise. So, would it be fair to say, Father, that one of the differences between, say, a mantra prayer? Because I know there are some listeners that are thinking, perhaps this is some sort of a, I don't know what, you know, Christian yoga or some something like this. That that the difference is that it's prayer versus some sort of a putting yourself in some zone or some such thing or I don't know what. Yeah, some phrase or yeah. state or there was this thing very common or popular when I was in college people oming for world right, peace right, right. and everything like this. But ultimately prayer takes place in the heart and from the core of a person's being he's supposed to be offering forth his prayer. Also a prayer as we would say and maybe this you'll ask about this a little bit later, a prayer of repentance, of a man acknowledging the lordship 
of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so in a way, here a person is orienting himself properly. A man is falling at the feet of God, the creator of all, entreating for mercy uh, because he believes God has mercy. He believes God is merciful. He's generous and he's loving. And mm. that's what he desires in his life. Mm. And he wants with that mercy and that love that everything ill would be driven out. Mm. And that his being, having emptied it through repentance, will be filled with this mercy, this love, this grace. As the uh, Apostle Paul says, whatever is beautiful, whatever is uh, lovely let us meditate on these things well let's follow up then on the on the uh, point of repentance i know that i've got written down here my my research for today that saint ignati briyanchananov wrote uh, on the jesus prayer the beginning and end of prayer is repentance you know i know someone out there father is is listening perhaps from another christian tradition and wondering why do these orthodox emphasize repenting and repentance so much i mean don't they have faith that god has already forgiven their sins and iniquities on the cross so how would you explain father the emphasis on repentance and orthodox spirituality i mean we're not denying the work that christ did on the cross clearly no that's what we want within us not only as a historical fact but as a living reality, the experience of God coming individually to each human person deep within their being and letting that forgiveness flow throughout their entire being, not as some sort of merely legal contract that is being decided in a formal way in some sort of court far away, but as a real experience. So repentance, first of all, we need to go to the uh, etymology of the word repentance, metinia the transformation or, or change of the noose or the mind that the the part of man's being that apprehends and beholds all spiritual truths the noose or mind is transformed through repentance so really that's understanding repentance in that way and looking for the renewal of this uh, direct apprehension of God that's what we want it's not some morbid state that we want to stay in for uh, because somehow we prefer it to depression. Rather, being renewed day by day. And, and really, the Holy Fathers talk about this and they give the examples of somebody, as they say in words which maybe are mm, hard to understand, somebody becoming holy light or holy aflame. Uh, a man whose heart is burning at all times. As the apostles said on their, after they returned from Emmaus, did not our heart burn within mm. us while he was with us at the breaking of the bread? Hmm. And so th this is what we're after in repentance. It's not to be somehow sunk in morbidity or, or uh, uh, chewing over our misery, but rather turning away from all these things, we turn to God. And, he, and we know, as he has promised, he will fill us with all his blessings, all the, with all his fullness. Hmm. Moving, moving back towards the prayer itself, would you, before we get into the details, of, some of the details of that, would you recommend the Jesus Prayer to non-Orthodox Christians? I, I've heard two sides of that story. I'm curious as to what your counsel would be. I think that the Jesus Prayer, the name of Jesus, will lead people to himself. They will lead people to our Lord Jesus Christ. And the more a person prays to God, 
the more a person cries out to our Lord Jesus Christ, the closer they will come to him. And I think that that is the uh, best way for them to approach God, is to come closer and closer to him. And I think that if a person draws close to God, I think he will feel very much at home in the Orthodox Church. Hmm. And so, in that respect, we shouldn't somehow be fearful that this person is going to be misusing some tool. And yes, perhaps if you give some fire to someone, they will, they will misuse fire. But uh, I, we, we have to be judicious, we have to be sober, and we have to be wise. But maybe someone comes to us, and here we are, we're Orthodox Christians, we've been given these remedies, we know what heals. And so we should be generous in helping other people come to the mm. physician, Christ. I, speaking personally, I think it is the prayer that led me to the uh, Holy Orthodox Church, um, and and so I'm appreciative of that of that answer and not a, a strict no. It's only for Orthodox uh, response. Well, I I have written down in my notes, Father, that Saint Isaac the Syrian wrote, "It is a great evil to teach some high doctrine to one who is still in the rank of beginners, and in spiritual stature still an infant." So, acknowledging that most of us are beginners and infants. Could you please give us a brief and basic primer on, on how you would counsel our listeners to pray the Jesus Prayer in a way that won't get us into, the, into trouble and delusion and all of these high and mighty things that you've counseled us not to get into? I mean, what form of the prayer would you, would you recommend for us as a beginner and so on? Well, very simply, I would recommend those beginning in the Christian life, Orthodox Christian life, who are saying the Jesus Prayer to pray simply, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner, without rushing. Now, I know there are some traditions in which they are counseled to repeat the prayer rapidly, continuously, non-stop, primarily to displace any other thoughts that would be there. And I respect this. But I think for an Orthodox Christian living in the world, amidst many cares, that the more often he could pray with peace of heart, having forgiven everyone, being especially at peace with their spouse and their children, uh, at peace with their parish priest, and actually in a healthy relationship with their parish priest. That whenever their mind isn't occupied with something necessary at that time, or with some thought or reflection on the faith, to return, to talk to God, and to to say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy in me, a sinner. About that same way and speed that you're with that each you're person, it. it's going to be different, but with uh, without rushing, and because ultimately it is, we pray not only with our lips, we pray with our understanding, we pray with our whole being, and if we're rushing, our mind's going to be racing. Maybe our heart will be racing too. Our blood's going to be pumping through our body, and I think that uh, uh, at every one moment, we can be offering one prayer. So say I'm standing or sitting in, in front of my altar at home, and I'm alone praying the prayer. Am I going to pray it? Would you counsel me to pray it aloud, or would I whisper it if audibly? There's, if there's no one there, I would counsel you to pray it aloud. And there's Because then your, your ears also, your lips and your ears are participating in the prayer as well. And we want our whole being to be participating in our prayer to God. Now, for example, you may have guests at your house or someone studying or something like that. So obviously it would be rude 
and insensitive for someone to ostentatiously be offering his prayer as the most immediate thing in the whole world that moment when really hmm. our Lord Jesus Christ says to go into your closet hmm. and there in secret pray to your heavenly father and your father who is in secret will reward you openly and we should pray in that way as well Father, uh, what role um, does what I would describe as spontaneous prayer, informal from the heart, and or supplication play in prayer? I mean, must we always stick to the rubrics and the written prayer rule, or is there a time for just crying out to God um, without those? The church services are a school of prayer. They are not only a school of prayer, they are the common prayer, the common work of the church, which takes our individual prayers, brings them together, joins them together, and makes them like a loaf, an offering, to be placed on the altar of God. And this is done through the uh, offering of the Eucharist, of thanksgiving, the common worship of the church, a common confession of one faith, uh, with the unity of all believers coming together, of everyone having forgiven each other. And this can only happen at certain fixed times during the day. And between those fixed times, we're not to stop praying. And truly, we should be crying out from the depths of our heart. For example, you have the wife married to an alcoholic husband. We know the Lord hears her prayers, and we know how such a woman prays. We also know how a mother prays when her children go to school, or when they become teenagers or gone, or maybe they're out a little later. These people are crying. And in the Holy Gospel, there's a wonderful passage. In my first year in the monastery here, it really struck me clearly. And this was about the widow mentioned in the 17th chapter of the Holy Gospel according to St. Luke. And there was this unjust judge, and this widow came to uh, came to him and asked to be avenged of her adversary. And this judge would not hear her, but because she persisted, because of her importunity, he at last came and avenged her of her adversary, because otherwise he would, she would never have left him alone. So our Lord Jesus Christ uses this as a model of prayer. We're supposed to, and he says, Will the Lord not hear them that cry out to him faithfully day and night? And so this is another model given to us by our Lord Jesus Christ on how to pray in the Holy Gospel. Mm. And he uses this image of an unjust judge. If an unjust judge will do this, how much more our merciful Heavenly Father. And we know what a father does. A father loves his children, and he listens to them and hears them. Which, which brings up a point I'm, I'm, I'm glad you, you sort of brought up in, in this, and that is, if we are praying the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner, are we able to also use that to pray for others? Let's say the child, let's say the, the sick. Yes. You would just substitute that person's name? Yes, but not say a sinner. Have mercy on my daughter, a sinner. You have mercy on my daughter, or have mercy on my friend John. Have mercy on my friend Marina. And because it's we're the ones who are responsible to confess our own sins, so obviously we wouldn't say that word hmm. about somebody else. And that simply helps at times in placing ourselves before God. 
before him in a humble manner. But yes, there's no reason we can't continually ask the Lord to have mercy on someone close to us and to continue to pray and to keep our mind uh, directed Godwards, entreating God on their behalf. Because when someone asks us, will you pray for me? Yes, right. I'll pray for you. We make a quick prayer and sometimes we forget about them. Right. But what if we continue to pray for them throughout the day? If we tell someone else or we see a beggar and we go and give them some money or some food and say, will you pray for a friend of mine named so-and-so? I want you, I'm serious. I want you to do this. And the Lord hears us not on the basis of how many times we pray to him, but on how sincere our prayer is. And so prayer is to lead to deeper prayer, deeper prayer to true, sincere, heartfelt prayer, and eventually to what the Holy Fathers call pure prayer. Well, you, you raised that. Could you tell us what pure prayer is? Is there a, kind of a beginner's way of describing that? We will talk about pure prayer simply as a beginner. Lord, have mercy. Okay. Pure prayer, which is talked about by the Holy Fathers, by most all the Holy Fathers, is prayer that is without distraction, without images, even without words. Hmm. Because words describe the reality that we know. And pure prayer is actually an assent to God, a partaking in some way of the world to come, of being in God's presence, of being wholly selfless in our prayer, of truly bearing our heart before Him. And, and so there's many things that we don't know, we can't describe. And also, there's a beautiful prayer by Metropolitan Philaret of Moscow. He says, Thyself pray in me. Mm. That if God descends, if he abides within us as we ask him, then he himself will help us to pray. He says, even with uh, groanings, that cannot be uttered, that cannot be put in words, that it cannot be even uh, made into sounds. So pure prayer transcends sound, it transcends words, it transcends feelings. And this is one thing that many people do not understand, that true prayer is beyond feelings as we know them. Mm. It's not passionate. Mm. And so very often our prayer is passionate because we want something. And we, if we want something, in some way we truly haven't accepted the will of God. Is praying for specific things, supplication, prayer not, good prayer? No. By all means, it is. The Apostle enjoins us to pray, intercessions, thanksgiving, supplication. And so that's one aspect of prayer. It can't be the whole prayer, but it should be a major part. But through our intercessions, through our supplications for all those we know or don't know, those who asked us to pray for them, ultimately our hearts should be filled with thanksgiving. And that through that thanksgiving, which is one of the names of the liturgy, thanksgiving of the Eucharist, mm. to an overflowing of prayer where words stop, feelings stop, thoughts stop, images cease, where we go beyond what we do know 
and in some way God reveals something to us. Father, as we're coming to the end of, of the interview, I'd, I'd like to end with, with this question, and it's a broad one, and maybe you could just give us a general or, or a specific a response as you'd like, and, and that is, I hear a lot of questions from people about ascetic disciplines and the monastic life versus the life in the world. And since we are lay people and not monastics, primarily listening to this program, how much ascetic discipline, in, in your opinion, fasting, prostrations, vigils, you know, abstinence from sexual relations with a spouse, etc., is it good and appropriate for laity to do? It all has to be done in a healthy way, a psychologically healthy way, a spiritually healthy way. For example, before we go into much about asceticism, a man has to be at peace with his wife and with his children. If he's not, he's left something undone. And therefore, according to the teaching of the Holy Gospel, he's supposed to leave his gift at the altar mm. and go be reconciled with those who, whom he has wronged or offended, and then come and return and offer his gift on the altar. And then God can be praised. And ascetic discipline, fasting, prostrations, it all has its place. But often this can be an expression of the flesh, hmm. of uh, the earthly man. And it's maybe in a way our way of offering our discipline, our attention, our devotion to God. But it has to be united to uh, grace. Without grace, these things, can ex a person can exhaust himself, not just exhaust his flesh, he can exhaust himself, so that he's not able to give his best. And many of these things should be done with the counsel of one's, if one's married, with one's wife, with one's priest. Also, we have in the church godparents or baptismal sponsors who maybe have more experience in the Christian life than we do, and we can benefit from that. This also is where it helps us to read spiritual literature and to see how everything can be in perspective, because our spiritual life should be balanced. And so fasting should be balanced. Uh, Asceticism, all different types, should be balanced. There are some people, for example, who need to be careful about certain things like alcohol, tobacco, um, all sorts of uh, entertainment. And these are the things they should work on first. And then, mm -hmm. of course, also observing the fasts of the church in a very moderate way. What does moderate mean? I've had that specific question. Well, that's a good question. For example, we abstain from uh, meat and dairy products on Wednesdays and Fridays and also throughout the 40 days of Lent. And some people who are new to the Orthodox faith, for them this is very difficult or confusing. Well, they should make an attempt. They should begin. Hmm. In this practice, it's over without getting upset, hmm. without being legalistic, without being a policeman hmm. where they're watching other people. And because all this activity should be healthy, um, we deny ourselves what we want. And when we don't give our body, our flesh, or our will what we want, it screams. And so we have to, like a dog, we train a dog, we have to train ourselves in the same way. That, and like we wouldn't give our children everything they want. We give them a little something, we tie them over, we make sure they have something nourishing. And so with ourselves too, we have to find uh, what is healthy, uh, what is nourishing, that is spiritually nourishing, uh, what could lead to a balanced way of life, and, and stay away from any fanatical, 
people be very careful about getting into reading labels and things like that. This all pro produces an unhealthy psychology. And uh, ultimately, we should be able to make very simple, clear choices, and we'll find out that fasting is very easy. It's very simple. And really, the fasting leads to simplicity. Asceticism leads to simplicity. Mm. Uh, and this also leads us into the rhythm of the church. For example, there's some people, maybe they will start to fast the whole first week of Lent. And maybe because of their job and their family obligations, they might not be able to do it without much focus until later in Lent. But at least they know what that's about. It, mm. They know what fasting entails. And gradually they can work up to seeing this as a healthy discipline in the church. That is something they'll look forward to. Mm. And they should accompany it with the readings from the Holy Scripture for each day and awareness of the lives of the saints for that day and the feasts. And so that they're, they're not just uh, having a bodily fast, but they're taking part in the fast spiritually. They're taking part in the fast together with the whole church, attending the pre-sanctified liturgy and going to the, some of the memorial services on Saturday. So they, they begin to take part in the whole way of life of the church throughout the whole year. And then they won't be obsessed mm. on certain little aspects, like, for example, did something have oil or did I eat something I shouldn't have? And in the gospel, we see this. Our Lord Jesus Christ says, you have, uh, you tie the mint and cumin and anise, but you omit the weightier matters of the law, justice or crisis, uh, uh, judgment, and uh, mercy and compassion. And so these are the things you ought to have done, but also not to have left the other undone. And so there are these things which we have to keep first and foremost, or our fasting will be imbalanced, and that we will lose our perspective and we'll start judging people about what they're doing. And once again, we turn it back to ourselves. We look at ourselves, we see we're little like children, we're sinners, but we have a merciful God who's waiting for us to come to Him. Amen. Well, I'm afraid that this uh, will be the end of the interview, but Father Abbot Gerasim from uh, St. Herman Monastery in Platina, where so much good work and prayer has gone out over many, many years. I, I, again, I want to say on behalf of all of our listeners, thank you, and perhaps you could close uh, with, with a blessing. May God bless us and have mercy on us and cause His face to shine upon us. Amen. You've been listening to a special edition of The Illumined Heart, commemorating the 25th anniversary of the repose of seeker, struggler, writer, monk, and priest, Father Seraphim Rose. For more information on the books published and distributed by St. Herman of Alaska Monastery, visit their website at www.sthermanpress.com. That's www.sthermanpress.com. This has been a special presentation of the Illumined Heart and Ancient Faith Radio, your listener-supported Orthodox Internet Radio Connection. AncientFaithRadio.com. <laughs>